Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, the Internet of Things should really be called the Internet of Terrible. And we'll cover the stories this week to prove our case, and then we'll submit our solution to you, the TechSnap audience. Plus, the real security issues of Android fragmentation, your great questions, our answers, a packed roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 288 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on October 13th, 2016. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Oh, our live stream and all of the downloads over Jupiter Broadcasting? Well, that's powered by Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. Go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week for 288 weeks in a row, it's our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hello, Alan. Hello, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hi, Alan. Best shirt ever. <laughs> Best shirt ever. And at first, I'm like, what? It's a tweet, but it's like an epic tweet. My data center is bigger than yours. Hashtag I saw it first. <laughs> that's a good shirt. Did you pick that up at a it's conference? Uh, no, uh, ISP, uh, mailed it to me for pre-ordering a server at their new data center. That's, that's awesome. That's great. So I was looking over the doc today and the new segment is huge. And I like yeah, this first one cause it's like a, is it, would you call it? It's like, actually four stories at once. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a, it's like a roundup of sorts. The yeah. internet of terror roundup, you might say. Should we start there? <laughs> yep. All right. I think we start with Mr. Brian Krebs this week. Yes. Uh, three out of the four stories in this roundup of stories are Krebs and Oh, okay. <laughs> so Krebs has been machine gunning articles about the Internet of Terror devices that were used to attack him recently. Yeah. And so I figured rather than trying to cover each of them individually, I would just kind of lump it all together and, and tie it in a neat bow. Nice. <clears throat> so first he asks, who makes these Internet of Terror things that are attacking me? Uh, so his first post actually breaks down the manufacturers of the devices who are to blame for all this nonsense. Oh, okay. Although some of this is actually reverse engineering. So what he did is got the open source, uh, the, the recent release source code for the botnet and got the giant list of uh, default usernames and passwords out of it. Hmm. Then he started Googling these and from that figuring out what device they belong to or work on. That is a way to do it. This list Talk about of, backing uh, your way into it, though. Yeah. Uh, so while this isn't necessarily 100% accurate, hmm. um, it, you know, just because, for example, uh, the default username root and the default password admin probably work on more than just the IPX DDK network camera. Yeah. You know, but that was the one that he found. Um, or so it could be even more, really. system for the InQ InVision cameras and a bunch of other devices of that type. Or um, these uh, Duha DVRs use the username root with the password 666666 or... 888-888 because passwords are hard. Yeah. yeah, apparently, I guess I'm told. <laughs> uh, Access IP cameras, the default root password is pass. That's because probably password super. password is too much to type. I actually have, I have, I have gotten devices that I've purchased just from like the electronics store, Best Buy, and they have the password of pass. So I would bet there are, I mean, that's not even, I mean, I've probably, probably maybe half a dozen devices over my life I've bought that have the default password of pass. It's probably pretty uh, common. Panasonic printers, yeah. we're lucky, have an eight-character password. Okay, okay. 
zero 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 zero. No, no. <laughs> Realtek routers. Username root, password Realtek. Damn it. Uh, SMC routers. Uh, username admin, password SMC admin. Oh, that's the worst. Even your ubiquity AeroS routers. UBNT is the username and UBNT is the password. The problem with using the username as the password is it's the first or second thing I try. If I the, okay. if I try like a default password that doesn't work, maybe I just try admin, username. Admin, password, admin, admin, and a couple yep. others. Oh, man. That's the worst. Some of these, too, are vendors like you'd hope Ubiquity who would be... <laughs> yep. I mean, some of this might be old, but the problem is if they've shipped it, there's, then there's devices out there with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. So, uh, so, this is Ezcribs of Europe over the weekend, the source uh, code that powers the Internet of Things botnet that attacked him, um, is publicly released, and so he looked at it to get the list of passwords. Uh, he says... Uh, it continuously scans the Internet for Internet of Things systems uh, protected by factory default usernames and passwords. Many readers have asked for more information about which devices and hardware makers were being targeted. As it happens, it was very easy to tell by looking at the list of usernames and passwords and then Googling them. Uh, he says, in all, there are 68 unique username and password pairs in the botnet source code. However, many of these are generic and used by dozens and dozens of products, including routers, security cameras, printers, and DVRs. Uh, all of the passwords are quite bad. You know, if you look at them, uh, they're usually fairly straightforward. A couple mm-hmm. of them seem kind of random, like uh, this high silicon one is HI3518, uh, but I think the 3518 is the model number. Oh, uh, yeah, sure. sure. <laughs> Some of these other ones, like uh, this one is just JVBZD. So they kind of tried to be random, although five characters isn't enough. Um, but it's the same five characters on every one of the devices. Mm. <laughs> it's like, that doesn't work. Like, how hard is it to make the password like the last so many numbers of the serial number or something that's printed on the sticker on the bottom of the device so you're not going to lose it, but is unique to every device? Yeah, you just have to come up with a way at the time of the image generation to do that. And that's, that mm-hmm. is technically... Well, it doesn't even have to be that. You can use the same image on every one. When it boots up, it just has to change from the default password You're right. that would to be this how other you, password. That's how you do it. You and don't then, even have to make a unique image for each free. one. That's free. That's basically free. Doing that would be free. Exactly. <laughs> oh, exactly. Here's the thing. Here's what really gets me is, like I just mentioned a second ago, like with these Ubiquity uh, ones, they may have changed the default password now or fixed it now, but if you ship it once, it's too late. So... If you make a single mistake when it comes to this stuff, you end up with these devices out in the wild and there's no coming back from that. You can maybe patch a solid percentage of them, but you'll never get 100%. There's no coming back. So it is it is imperative that they get the get the, the initial release of the product at least in regards to security, right? Yeah. Um it, it's terrible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, so is that just part one of this? Uh... Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, so uh, regardless of whether your device is listed above or not, if you own a wired or wireless router, an IP camera, or any other device that has a web interface, and you haven't yet changed the factory default credentials, your system may already be part of an IoT botnet. Unfortunately, there's no simple way to tell if your device has been compromised. Hmm. However, the solution to eliminating preventing infections uh, of this particular malware, like uh, Maria, which is loaded only into memory, means that it gets wiped out every time you power cycle the device. So turn the device off, uh, 
you know, unhook it from the network except for maybe directly to your laptop or something. Power it on, change the default password, and then put it back. And then now it's not going to get hacked as easily. Now, there may still be some other flaw that allows somebody to hack it eventually, but you're protected from the big one, which is the default password. Yeah. 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 Several readers have pointed out that while uh, advising IoT users to change the password via the device's web interface is a nice security precaution, it may or may not uh, address the fundamental threat. That's because the Maria uh, malware spreads via communication services called Telnet and SSH. Uh, you know, Krebs assumes you don't necessarily know what those are, but obviously the audience of TechStep, I hope, does, um, which are command line text-based uh, interfaces that are typically accessed, you know, from the command prompt or whatever. Um, the trouble is, even if you change the password in the device's web interface, the same default credentials may still allow you to log in over Telnet and SSH. A lot of these devices use a separate password database for the web interface than they do for SSH. So even if you went in the web interface and changed the default password, that default password might still work for SSH. Uh, worse, a bunch of these devices don't allow you to change the Telnet password, which just never makes any sense. A, none of these devices should ever use Telnet. It should be SSH. And if it is SSH, they really uh, should allow you to change the password. It doesn't make sense for them not to. I agree. I and the only the only reason you wouldn't want them to is if you need to know the password yourself for some reason. Well, as a manufacturer, that's not how you should do it. Yeah, I agree. Know. That's why it shouldn't be a problem. It shouldn't be an if issue. If you really need a support system, install a couple of SSH keys. Not one, a couple. Yeah, okay. Uh, and then you can always, uh, you know, you, you keep the keys. You, you use the first one, you lock the other two up. And uh, if something happens the first one, you can revoke it and use the... Second one, well, wouldn't it be great, too, if that was an option in the device's UI? Enable remote customer support. You check that, and then it activates that account, and that'll log in. That, that too, key. yes. Uh, seems you know, seems so. like it wouldn't be that much work. Nope. Uh, and yeah. So uh, in some of them, you can disable SSH entirely. If you're not going to use it, that's a good idea. Uh, more tips on securing devices, go to Krebs' website and read the article. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Krebs' next article. Yeah. Uh, Europe is now pushing new internet uh, or new security rules for Internet of Things devices. Uh, the European Commission is drafting new cybersecurity requirements to beef up security around the so-called Internet of Things, uh, such as web-connected security cameras, routers, and digital video recorders. Uh, news of the uh, expected proposal comes as security firms are warning that a great many IoT devices are equipped with little or no security pro protection. The Commission would encourage companies to come up with a labeling system for Internet-connected devices uh, that are approved mm. and secure. Boy, that sounds like that could be a mess, though. I like the idea well, on the like surface. How, yeah, but like, how do you give it like security stars or something? And how does the regulatory how does the regulatory body well, in stay particular, up to date it with like security the requirements? The commission is suggesting that companies come up with their own system for this. So it'd be self-regulated, and then they stamp it with some sort of government approval. Yeah. They say the EU labeling system that rates appliances based on how much energy they consume could be a template for the cybersecurity rating. You know, I've heard something like that here when it comes to uh, the, uh, the, the, I forget the labs, but, the, you know, there's the UEL certified labs. I can't remember yeah. what that's called. A bunch of stuff. Yes, but, like, if you go to buy a new refrigerator, every refrigerator has a sticker saying, you know, yep. it uses this many watts of power, which yep. is about this much, this many dollars per year. And so, sure, that'd be great, except for how do you decide how many stars to give a device? In particular, most of the flaws, like, obviously, having a default password means negative 100 stars. <laughs> 
<laughs> but um, there you, you know, go. a lot of the other flaws here, it's like, oh, it turns out if you go to if you deep link to a certain page in the web interface, it just never checks if you're even logged in and allows you to make changes without even having to be logged in. Right. Common. Um, you know, how do you test for all of those things? Like we can make a giant list of every flaw that anybody's ever had before and test them. But, you know, that is going to take a bunch of time and money. Well, but and, and how would a body it, like that... It's not going to stop new vulnerabilities. Like Exactly. It's not as simple as, you know, these ratings that they're trying to come up with, I don't think. Yeah. They, they would have to be able to respond on a near weekly basis uh, because there's always new... There's new things being discovered. There's new, right. there's new vulnerabilities. So, yeah, the idea of having a number of security stars on the box is great, but... It would probably actually lead to poor consumer information, though. Because you, well, because how many devices are going to walk, come out with not five stars? Well, right. And I bought a five star box. I don't understand why there's an issue. I sh- what's the problem here? I got a five star box. I did my research. I got yeah. the ones consumer uh, you know, reports. If they told want me. to pass a law, how about, how about uh, if it turns out you have a security problem of at least this degree, you have to uh, do a recall and give all your customers their money back. You know, like something like they do. Well, that's for not like, going to work because these IoT device companies set up a separate company for each device oh. so that they can just close yeah, after right. they sell it. I was going to say, what about up. like a stock market investment where you look at their risks and their the, the issues they've had? Like they have to have like a, like a public reporting. A bond out yeah. of that. You, <laughs> if you want to sell an IoT device, yeah, you must okay. give the government... Uh, $250,000 oh, uh, just in case you end up causing <clears throat> public disaster with your device. This is honestly, I mean, let's be let's be real. What they need to do is they need to stop forking. They need to just ship mainstream operating systems that are getting patched upstream. They need to be able to relay those patches onto their users. All the technology is here. These are internet-connected devices. They can receive updates. Atomic updates are possible. You don't have to, like, risk... Breaking the device during an update. All of this is achievable. Google ships out monthly updates to Nexus devices. Those are technically Internet of Things devices. It can be done. They just have to do it. That's really what it doesn't need. We don't need regulation. For these dual firmware updated Internet of Things type devices since the 90s. I agree. I and I perhaps the argument for regulation comes in because they just haven't gotten the job done, I suppose. Yep. So okay. Uh, but yeah, this sounds great, but how do you actually rate the cybersecurity of a device? Who's going to be allowed to do these audits? Who decides if an auditor is qualified enough to do the audit? Uh, and it's just, yeah, sadly, it doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, for example, one of these uh, devices has a default password, username root, and the password is XC3511. Oh, nice. Uh, but this is a broad array of white-label DVR and IP uh, camera electronics. Basically... One Chinese company called uh, Zongmai Technology makes this, and then of like literally hundreds of downstream vendors buy that, slap their logo on it, and sell it with the same default password. Yeah. And no firmware updates. <sighs> and then, and this whole and then the, and of course these white labels often are fly by night companies. Yeah. Well, in particular. The white level that you know they make the device and then they, but they never get the reputation because they they're not selling the device to you. It was a D link or you know some other off brand you've never heard of or something. It could be anything. But yeah. Uh, so Krebs says uh, that information comes in an analysis posted this week by Flashpoint Intel, whose security analyst discovered that the web-based administration page for devices made by this Chinese company uh, can be trivially bypassed. Uh, if you don't go to ip address slash login.htm, 
and go directly to dvr.htm, uh, you can do whatever you want without having to even enter the username and password. So having the default username and password is bad, but you don't even need that. You could just go directly to a certain page and uh, start using the device for whatever you want. Hmm. Uh, you know, the issue with these particular devices is that users cannot feasibly change the password. That password is hard-coded into the firmware, and the tools necessary to disable it are not even present. Even worse, the web interface is not aware that these credentials even exist. <laughs> so you can SSH into the device using a username that the web interface doesn't even know about. Mm. There's no way to change the password or disable SSH. <laughs> what could go wrong? Nothing. Every single thing could oh, go wait. wrong. Oh, wait. So, the Internet of Things is terrible. Yeah. Uh, devices are all insecure. There's default passwords everywhere. It's all terrible. All right, so far, I agree. So now, Krebs is Internet of Things devices are now being used as proxies by cyber criminals. Oh, man. This post looks at how criminals are using hacked IoT devices as proxies to hide their true locations online as they engage in a variety of other types of criminal activity, uh, from frequently underground forums uh, to credit card and tax refund fraud. So the criminals use your Internet of Things device as a proxy, uh, and since a lot of these devices have basically no storage, for logs or anything, sure. there's no evidence left behind, uh, or they could just erase it, and then they bounce off the device at your house, so when the police track down who committed the tax refund fraud, they come knocking at your door. Right. Uh, and it looks like it was you. So uh, Krebs says, recently I heard from a cybersecurity researcher who's uh, created a virtual honeypot environment designed to simulate hackable Internet of Things devices. <laughs> the source, who has to remain anonymous, said his honeypot soon began seeing traffic uh, destined for Asus and Linksys routers uh, using default credentials. When he examined what the traffic was designed to do, he found that his honeypot system was uh, being told to download a piece of malware from a destination on the web. The researcher found that the malware was uh, being pushed uh, to his honeypot system, was designed to turn his faux internet routers into SOX proxy servers, essentially a host designed to uh, route traffic between a client and a server. More often, SOX proxies are used to anonymize connections because uh, they can help obfuscate the true origin of the client. Hmm. What he observed was that all of the systems were being used for a variety of badness, from proxying web traffic destined for cybercrime forums to testing stolen credit cards at uh, merchants online. Further, study of the malware files and the traffic beacon emanating from the honeypot system indicated that his honeypots were being marketed on a web-based criminal service that sells access to SOX proxies in exchange for bitcoins. Mm -hmm. So not only do they use your Internet of Things devices to commit cybercrime, they're actually selling, renting out, they're whoring out your router and your <laughs> DDR yeah. to other criminals. They're pimping your stuff. <laughs> Pimp my router. Not the way you're thinking. Yeah. Not make it badass. Literally, uh, you know, horror it out. Yeah, they they own your stuff and then they sell it. Yeah. They rent it out. Like a prostitute. And meanwhile, uh, you're trying to, you know, people think about it when like people buy devices, right? They try to buy something they can afford that's gonna perform the way they want. Yeah. I just wanted a security camera for the front of my house. I didn't want to get involved with Russian mafia <laughs> stealing credit cards. <laughs> or worse, you know, I, I bought this device to protect my children and now someone's using it for child porn to anonymize their browsing. 
Wow. All kinds of terrible. So uh, Krebs on his site has a bunch of tips for securing your router and Internet of Things device to help prevent some of this. Next, uh, ThreatPost has uh, SSH TCP forwarding on by default on many Internet of Things devices used in new credential stuffing attacks. Uh, so of credential course, stuffing? Router, credential yes. stuffing? Okay. Uh, so, of course, routers and other Internet of Things devices sometimes uh, have SSH turned on and are being used as proxies even without being compromised. So the default SSH configuration uh, allows anybody with a valid username and password to use the uh, TCP forwarding feature to you know, do an SSH proxy. Uh-huh. Lots of people do this all the time. Mm-hmm. But because there's a default username and password in all these devices, it means anybody that knows the password can connect to your device and bounce their connection off of it. <laughs> this allows attackers to log into the IoT device using the default credentials, sometimes that you can't even change, and then bounce their connection off the device uh, and leave no trace. You know, it's, it's like, do the people that make these IoT devices not know how to edit SSHD underscore config? I, I don't know. I can't, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Yep. Uh, the senior uh, security research team leader from Akamai says, uh, we're in for an internet of unpatchable things. Uh, and I'm terrified about it. <laughs> yeah, I think we're, we're kind of there. And we started really with the routers. I mean, we make fun of the Hughes lights and the whatnots, but we really did start with these routers and these printers and these cameras. And DVRs and, and DVRs, smart yeah. TVs. And so it's already there. I mean, yeah, the other stuff's just going to add to the problem. Yep. Well, that's it for that story. Jeez, Alan. I just, I'm kind of left, I'm just like sitting with it for a second. Like, I'm just like, like, what do you, it's kind of a downer. <laughs> it's kind of a downer. And, you know, you, uh, we, uh, we saw the real, we saw real ramifications of it recently too, which sort of uh, adds a little bit of an underline to it. Well, all right. So that was like uh, four or five stories in one batch. So we have them all broken out in the show notes. Alan has it all copiously documented for you as well. Is there anything else you want to mention? Uh, no, that's it for that one. All right. Well, let's talk about something that is sustainable, something you can manage, something that you can install updates on, and that's your own droplet over at DigitalOcean.com. DigitalOcean.com! Use our promo code, and you get a $10 credit. SnapOcean, it's one word. Put it. You apply it to the account, and you get a $10 credit. And I mentioned that... Specifically, because if you look at their hourly pricing, you could really get some distance. Because ten bucks is ten bucks. I mean, you you can run a three cents an hour rig and really try to just experiment with stuff and see how it goes. They have. Well, a, yeah, I actually had somebody write in uh, to BSD now the other day saying, you know, I'm trying to compile this software and it's C plus plus, and because of the templates and stuff, it actually takes like two and a half gigs of RAM to compile. Mm. Uh, and I was like, well, you know, you could spin up uh, a DigitalOcean yeah. droplet yeah. with say four or eight gigs of RAM yep. just for the one hour to compile it and then move the compiled version over to your, yeah. your lower price drop. Yes, absolutely. I think that's a, I think that's a big use case. And, and if you just mm-hmm. take advantage of their template system, you could have a template uh, on your account ready to go that isn't even taking any money, and then you deploy it, you spin it up in seconds. Their interface is so easy to use, too, that if you're, if you're like a pro, then you're going to find this interface to be pretty competent and you're surprised in what it allows you to do. But if you're a beginner, you're going to actually find it usable and easy to understand. If you use our promo code SNAPOcean, too, there's no risk. You get a $10 credit. You can try it out for free for two months if you try their $5 rig. With their nice interface and their straightforward API, the only thing that I would also be remiss not to mention would be their fantastic documentation. And if I'm not mistaken... Did I th- you not mention the locations? 
Yeah, that's true. That's true. That does matter, doesn't it? New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Toronto, Germany, and India. So you can really have a global presence. And uh, I use but that. Also, they're just on top of it. Literally, FreeBSD 11 came out on Monday. That's right. Yep. And on Monday, they had support for FreeBSD 11, ZFS, and UFS droplets. That shows that I think they made it a priority there. That's really cool. Oh, yeah. Uh, they were on the mailing list uh, getting help with it before. They were seeking beta testers, and, and they had it. The, the day it came out, they had it on DigitalOcean. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah, I, I've spun up a couple of East Coast droplets just simply so that way when I'm distributing files that way using uh, peer-to-peer software, I uh, I can distribute to my listeners in those regions just a little bit faster for $5 a month. Why not? It gives me a global presence. And then if you're a free BSD user, obviously you can hear right there. They're keeping FreeBSD a, a free a priority. And one of the other things you'll notice too is they've got CoreOS, they've got Debian, they've got Fedora, they've got Ubuntu. There's a lot there's a lot of stuff available just with a base system or entire application stacks that you'll find something to do. It's really nice and it's got great documentation and you've got our promo code SnapOcean. One word, lowercase, it'll give you a $10 credit at digitalocean.com. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. And I like also if you guys want to tweet us with what you're using DigitalOcean droplets for, let us know. I'm sure, stuff. I'm sure. I'm sure. There's probably some pretty interesting use cases out in the TechSnap audience. Yeah, so let's I have a backup mail server, a status page server. Oh, that's a, uh, oh, that's a good testing. idea. Yeah, a status well, you know, page server like, would be really good. Well, right, because uh, you know we've seen most companies have one of these now, mm-hmm. and you need it somewhere completely off your infrastructure, so that when your infrastructure is down, you have somewhere to post the updates. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I was like, you know, uh, at five dollars a month, it's pretty hard to argue. Uh, that it's too complicated to to throw that bit of software up on a, a droplet and mm-hmm. just let it go. You know something else too that I've noticed is uh, because the UI on DigitalOcean is consistent and simple. When we're working with multiple people, it is nice that everybody knows how to use the interface now. Because even well, if you're new the to it, team feature. Yeah, the fact that I can be in three different teams and just switch between them in the UI and mm-hmm. get, do the right thing mm-hmm. is so useful. Yeah, that is. Especially if you're working, if you're setting something up for you know, somebody. Well, especially, I don't have to log out and log in as my other account. Yeah. Log out and log in my other other account. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Even Amazon doesn't have that nailed down like that. No, it's nice. It is nice. So use our promo code SnapOcean. Just try it out. Okay, so let's shift gears and uh, talk about our next news story. I'm I'm totally consumed by the by the graphic that Ars Technica went with here. The headline is the NSA could put undetectable trap doors in millions of crypto keys. I'm really glad you put this in here because That's actually not going this uh, unusually for Ars. They kind yeah. of overstated. The I thing. thought so too. That's why I'm really glad you put this in here because when I saw that headline, I'm like, I gotta ask Alan about this. So what what is the story? Yes. Uh, so researchers have discovered a way to factor certain 1024-bit Diffie-Hellman keys. Uh, okay. So the researchers have devised a way to place undetectable trapdoors in the cryptographic keys that protect websites, virtual private networks, and internet servers. The feat allows hackers to passively decrypt hundreds of millions of encrypted communications, as well as uh, cryptographically impersonate the key owner. So... Yes, no, not quite. Uh, So there's been a lot of hype about this, and that's why I decided to cover this story, because it's not really quite the end of the world like they're making it sound. Okay. Uh, So then we go over to the researcher's post, uh, and they have the actual details. And they say, uh, we've completed a cryptanalysis computation, which is at the same time a formidable achievement in terms of size, that is uh, the 1024-bit discrete logarithm computation of a Diffie-Hellman key, 
and a small-scale undertaking in terms of computational resources. Uh. It took about two calendar months of between two and 3,000 cores of CPU power. Mm. So, you know, that's a lot of cores. Yeah, they, they, threw, some, they threw some power at uh, this. You know, a couple of months of 3,000 cores is, is quite a bit of computer resources. But it's, not, it's, it's perfectly feasible for an attacker that really wants your stuff. Yeah. To say, in comparison, the real record for discrete logarithms uh, cracking a 768-bit Divya-Hellman, which was announced this spring, required more than 10 times as much computational power as their attack. Uh, they say, to achieve this, we cheated deliberately. <laughs> we chose the prime number which defines the problem to be solved in a special way so that the computation will be made much more efficient. However, we did this in a subtle way so that the trapdoor we inserted cannot be detected. So they used a special process to pick the prime number they used to make it easier to crack the resulting encryption. But done it in such a way that if you're only looking at the prime number, you can't tell whether it has the trapdoor or not. They say, unfortunately for most of the prime numbers used in cryptography today, we have no guarantee that they were not generated with a trapdoor like this. We estimate that breaking a non-trapdoor 1024-bit prime is at least 10,000 times harder uh, than breaking the trapdoor ones that they did. Okay. They say, uh, our computation raises questions about some internet standards that contain opaque fixed primes. So some standards say, just use this prime. But they don't say where they got that number from or the process they used to come up with it. Meaning possibly they picked it as one that they know the way to solve it quickly. Um, theoretically, we know how to guarantee uh, that primes uh, have not been generated with a trapdoor, but mostly wisely used primes come with no such public guarantee. Mm. A malicious party who inserted a trapdoor prime into a standard or a specific implementation would be able to break any communication whose security relies on one of those primes uh, in a relatively short amount of time. Huh. Solving discrete log uh, of a Diffie-Hellman key exchange lets the attacker decrypt the messages encrypted with, with the negotiated key. Right, So we use Diffie-Hellman as a way to, in public, between two people, uh, pass some numbers and come up with a secret key that we've never sent across the internet so someone listening doesn't actually know the secret key. And then we use that to do the encryption. If someone knows the prime numbers and can and factor it, then they can figure out what the, the magic number we used as the encryption key is and be able to decrypt all the stuff we sent back and forth. Mm. Uh, or with DSA signatures, it would allow the attacker to forge the signature by basically making a new signature so it looks like the person we trust actually signed this when it wasn't. It was the attacker. Okay. Uh, uh, so we have a way to make sure that the process used to select a prime is not backdoored so we, we know a way to make sure we end up with a prime that's not backdoored, but we don't have a way to look at any given prime and tell if it was backdoored. So it just means that we need to make sure we have, follow the right process whenever coming up with these prime numbers. He says, uh, we've not been able to find any documented seeds or verifiable randomness hmm. uh, for a bunch of widely used 1024-bit primes, such as the ones in uh, RFC 5114, um, whereas... Some uh, standards use the nothing up my sleeve numbers okay. to generate primes, okay. like the Oakley groups or the one the uh, negotiated uh, finite field Diffie-Hellman group uh, used in TLS 1.3, which is RFC 7919. Uh, those uh, 
provide a reasonable guarantee that they do not contain a backdoor because they described the process they used to come up with the random number. And so we know they didn't pick it specifically as one that they would be able to crack. Uh, so, you know, uh, some older standards contain magic numbers without a description of how they came up with that number. Yeah. Which could be innocent or it could be bad. Uh, huh. You know, without information about the process that was used to come up with the number, we have no way to tell that it's actually secure. Yeah. Only numbers uh, in some of the newer standards where we actually have the, you know, a nothing up my sleeve policy where they actually explain the process they used and, and it's a verifiable way to make sure the prime they came up with is randomly selected, not, you know, engineered to, to provide certain uh, advantages to them. Uh, that's the only way to make sure that we end up with a secure number. Uh, they also point out the attack we described affects only Diffie-Hellman and DSA. It does not affect elliptic curve Diffie-Hellman uh, or elliptic curve DSA. It also does not affect RSA because there are no global public parameters like the primes hmm. used in Diffie-Hellman for RSA. Okay. So most websites are probably not all that affected. That's why. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but some things like um, OpenVPN maybe. It, oh, de- really? it really depends on the setup. Okay. Uh, but, you know, a lot of websites are using RSA rather than DSA, and so they're okay. And most browsers automatically prefer uh, ECDH or ECDSA over regular DSA and DH, okay. specifically because they're better. Also, they say uh, Divi Helmet Primes, uh, sorry, you say the researchers say if you run a server, you should use elliptic curve cryptography or primes that are at least 2048 bit. Um, as we learned uh, earlier this year, Diffie-Hellman primes less than 1024 have been banned because of the logjam attack. Most browsers will just automatically refuse a connection if if you're not using at least 1024. Mm. So I'm guessing at some point we'll eventually be able to raise that to 2048 and also eliminate this problem. Uh, Hopefully most people who generated new primes around that time or since then are using at least 2048 anyway. There's no reason to, to generate smaller ones really. Uh, they also say, if you are a developer or standard committee member, make sure you use verifiable randomness to generate any fixed cryptographic parameters and publicly document the seeds you used so that someone else can use the same process to come up with the same number mm-hmm. and therefore prove that you didn't fiddle with the process to give you some advantage in decryption or whatever. Mm-hmm. They say that Appendix A.1.1.2 of the FIPS 186 uh specification describes how to do this for DSA primes as well. So there's documented ways to do this properly. So every new standard should do it properly and we won't have this problem. Mm. Mm. And for the old ones, there are maybe a couple of, uh, of especially selected prime numbers that might be a problem or might not. But as long as we use Diffie Hellman at least 2048, probably not a problem. Okay. So yes, while this is very interesting research and has some implications, it's not the end of the world like a bunch of the news articles are trying to make it say. <laughs> yeah, that ours one was that's a that's a stinger. I'm like, okay. Yeah, uh, you know, millions of crypto keys. It's like, eh, well, yes and no. Like DSA, you're actually pretending to be the key, but with Diffie Helming, you're just well, you can compromise millions of keys. They're all the temporary keys, right? They're the the key that's negotiated for that one connection only. Yeah, but. Yeah. Hmm. Well, Alan, your thoughts? That was good uh, to get that debunked. I, I, 
I don't know. Right. I, well, I, it's, it's not entirely bogus or anything. It's yeah, just, I just I read that headline and I thought, ah, uh, this something yeah. about that didn't smell right. So, all right. Well, I'll tell you what does smell right. That's IX Systems. Go to ixsystems.com/techsnap and go get some great hardware powered by the greatest Intel processors built for your open source workload. In fact, if you go to IX Systems, you'll see a little picture into what could be a range of hardware for a small business all the way up to a large enterprise. Storage, obviously, is great with a huge power area for IX Systems, but anything really in the compute area, virtualization, they have a lot of experience there. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. And while you're there, go visit their blog. They have an update right now on IX Systems attendance at Ohio Linux Fest. Have you seen this post, Alan? Uh, no, I didn't see that one. Yep, it's up there. Uh, got I, I saw a post um, from Michael Lucas, who was also there, because uh, he said a bunch of uh, people came up to him and were like, oh, you're that guy that wrote the book with Alan. Was Is like, that Groff? That's interesting, because, uh, yeah, that's Groff. <laughs> yep, the previous Foundation. Oh, really? Michael Lewis got, Lucas got approached about the book? That's awesome. Yes, well, uh, what was interesting is at a BSD conference, it's usually, you know, Michael wrote the book and I helped. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> when it was... People who watch TechSnap and, and BSD now and so on going to Ohio Linux Fest is like, oh, we know Alan, not you. Whereas, you know, awesome. at the BSD stuff, Michael's been in the community like 10 plus yeah. or 20 years longer than me. Yeah, it just depends uh, on what their background is, though. That's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I guess this – so this post was written by Ken. Uh, Ken yep. works on TrueOS, which uh, – a.k.a. Yes, uh, Chris's brother. A.k.a. Not, PCBSD. Not you, Chris, Chris. Yes. Um, and uh, th- Ken and Chris both work for IX. Mm-hmm. And I think that just sort of right there shows you IX system has IX systems has been watching the industry for a long time, and they've been hiring certain key developers, giving them jobs to help them so they can keep working on what they're working on and contribute to IX and contribute to the overall open source ecosystem while having a full daytime job, which is pretty mm-hmm. awesome because Chris and Ken are just one example of many. And IX Systems involvement with the community is huge because it pays off in ways that give them insight into upcoming trends and allow them to build hardware that truly meets your large work demand. It's it's surprising. If you're if you're a shop like Jupiter Broadcasting size, not very big, all the way up to huge enterprises. You can check yeah, out their the, client the, list and the see. The fact that they're willing to help you build a little free NAS mini for your house or sell you, you know, eight racks full of gear for your giant corporation or whatever. It's like, you're NASA. Okay, here's eight racks full of gear. Mm-hmm. Or it's like, there's not many companies who are willing to talk to you and NASA at the same time. That is true. It usually just doesn't work that way. Yeah. Yeah, look at that. NASA, the U.S. Army is also in there. Uh, NOAA is in there. There's a lot of different agencies in there. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. They have they have across healthcare, financial services, manufacturing, and of course high tech. They have a ton of great customers. You can check it out at their page, ixsystems.com. Do me a favor and go to ixsystems.com/techsnap and then go look at their client page, look at their blog, get a little idea, and download their comprehensive white paper that helps grease the wheels up the ladder at your company. So that way you can start building a more reliable IT platform. ixsystems.com. Slash TechSnap. Thanks, IX, for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Looking forward to seeing some of you guys at Meet BSD. Mm-hmm. Meet BSD. So, yes, also, if you're going to Meet to BSD, go to meetbsd.com slash vote and help us pick the uh, topics for the uh, breakout sessions. Yeah, there's also like a vote link at the top of the Meet BSD yes. page, too. Um, this is a soapbox of mine. It's something that's bothered me a lot, and it's one of the reasons why I'm having a hard time using Android anymore. It's this, it's the fragmentation issue. Upstream, Android's getting patched all the time, but downstream, nobody's getting them. And I, I honestly I've never feel... actually got numbers like this before. 
Uh, and yeah. I found this very interesting. I mean, obviously, there's our audience. They have ways around this between alternative ROMs by using Nexus devices. It, so some of this isn't directly applicable to them, but it does feel like it's a major issue. So where do we start? Yeah. Uh, so uh, we start at the top. Uh, it's been 13 months since Google began releasing Android security bulletins and software patches on a scheduled monthly basis. And so far, the benefits of this new strategy to shore up Android's defenses have been kind of mixed. Uh, because, you know, it's helped improve a lot of devices, but there's a lot of people that aren't getting them uh, because they don't have, you know, the somebody between Google and the user is is holding up the, the patches. Mm-hmm. So security experts say uh, no further than, uh, say to look no further than this past August, uh, Google's patching of the high-profile quad-router uh, vulnerability that took 96 days from when uh, the vulnerability... A notification by Qualcomm went out uh, to the final release of the critical patch for the flaws, which didn't happen until September. 96 so, uh, days. Yeah, between when... So they got a nice little timeline here. You can see when the researchers sent the, the first uh, notification of the problem to Qualcomm in February, and then they sent more all throughout April, and Qualcomm released the first patch in May, and then the other patches in July... Uh, and they finally released the last patch at the very uh, around August, and it was 96 days before Google uh, actually installed all the patches. But then you have no guarantee that the downstream OEMs even impl- applying those patches. Mm-hmm. So uh, th- there is delays say, at all, all, at all this, areas of the chain. Mm-hmm. Uh, by comparison, it took Apple just 10 days from the time researchers tipped off the company to the notorious Trident vulnerabilities, uh, which were publicly uh, attacked, unlike Quadruder, for Apple to release a patch. Ten days. Now, yeah, but, you know, that was a much higher profile thing. Google might have moved faster. Uh, but also the other problem is that this one, you know, it wasn't a flaw in Android per se. It was a flaw in the Qualcomm bit under that. So it was probably a little, you know, that's not necessarily a fair comparison. But 96 but days is a bit too long. But doesn't the iPhone also have Qualcomm? I mean, they have... They out- sure, but the, the the Trident vulnerability was different. It was like okay. just an iOS problem. And so okay. it's easy for Apple to fix iOS, and it's easy sure. for Google to fix Android. But when it's getting down into the baseband stuff... And a third-party hardware... That's a little more complicated. Right, yeah, yeah. But, you know, there's a stark difference in patching times, and hopefully Google can do better than that. Um, from uh, media server hardening and file-level encryption, Google's security efforts are still stymied by the nagging problem of fragmentation. Uh, for example, only a fractions of phones vulnerable to quadruter vulnerability actually got the Google's patch so far. Uh, one interesting stat here is that, according to Google, there are 60,000 unique models of Android devices. Wow. Now, this includes you know tablets and set-top boxes and th- things other than phones. But yeah, 60,000 unique models. Now, you know, sometimes a-, a phone will have like eight different models or something, and they'll all run the same software. So that's less fragmentation but you know compared if you look at apple if you add up every different possible model of iphone that's only you know a handful of of, of possible like eight phones, of them or right? something or nine or well there's more than that like yeah, i guess each different size of yeah each you got each size iPhone, and you got the probably S- under 100 uh versus sixty thousand. <laughs> yeah yeah okay um but yeah, uh, Kyle Lady, who's a researcher and developer at uh, Duo Labs, says issues tied to fragmentation are also hurting uh, 
Android's ecosystem on two fronts. One front is Google's effort to work with the myriad partners and identify risks and prepping patches for Google's monthly security updates. The second is making sure that those patches are actually deployed by Android handset makers and wireless carriers to consumers in a timely manner. And really, Google has no control over that. They can yell and stomp their feet, but the carriers and providers can block them as much as they want, really. Uh, this is uh, since Google released its latest fix, uh, uh, because there's multiple, there's four different fixes for the quad router thing. And when they released the latest one, only 15% of Android phones capable of receiving the security update have actually done so. Wow. According to the most recent data available to Duo Labs, which is collected October 5th. Yikes. So if you scroll down a little bit to the, uh, the next graphic, this is the uh, startling one. So they did a, uh, a graph here of the percentage of Android phones that haven't been patched in the last 90 days. Right? So this is phones that are missing at least three months of patches. And if you break it down, Nexus devices, only 2.3% of phones aren't patched. Wow, that's great. Meaning almost every single phone has the patch. That might be better than the that's iPhone. really great. Yeah. Uh, Samsung, though, is the second best with 55% of the phones unpatched so in the last 90 days. More than half. More than half of their phones are don't have the don't have patches which, within the last which is 90 days. Millions of phones, possibly. And they're the second best behind Nexus. They're actually ahead of all of their competitors with a number of less than half the phones have patches in the last 90 days. LG. 73% of phones don't have uh, the last 90 days worth of patches. Wow. That's three quarters of all their phones unpatched. Uh, Motorola, 96%. Sony, 98%. It's like Sony doesn't patch anything ever? What? How does that work? Those numbers are very, very dismaying. <laughs> Super. That's, that's a damn – those numbers are damning. So yes. 96%, 96.5% for Motorola surprises me the most. Out of all of these ones, that's the one that surprises me simply because not only is Motorola generally known for not having a huge overhead on Android, but for a while they were owned by freaking Google. Yeah, well, what's funny is that my Nexus phone has a giant Motorola logo on it. Right, that one was built by Motorola, yeah. Yeah, uh, but it counts as a Nexus phone, so it's different. Uh, well, I think part of the thing is, did Motorola actually make any phones recently that aren't Nexus? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they've made, okay. yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so what's interesting, is, I'd like to know some of the stats on this one of how old the phones are actually included in this. Like if it's every Samsung phone ever, then I'm sure there's a lot of old phones in use in different places that, you know, do we really need to count five-year-old phones in this? Kind of yes, but kind of no. Uh, it'd be interesting to see how those numbers look if you look at only phones sold in the last 18 months or something. You know, I'd like to see a, uh, do a trend analysis of are we getting any better at this or are we getting worse? Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, for Google's part, uh, one of the things I found interesting is uh, actually spelled out Google support policy for Nexus, which I was murky on. Glad to know. Mm -hmm. uh, so Google part, it says it will provide support for its Nexus-branded uh, Nexus phones for at least three years uh, from when they first started selling the device or 18 months after the last time they sold the device. Now, I don't know if that means you're guaranteed three years plus up to 18 months after they've stopped selling it or whichever one is less. But, uh, you know, I don't know. Did they, are they selling any Nexus phones still or did they already stop 
doing that, and so the 18-month countdown is already on. Well, you know, sure. I don't know about the Play Store itself, but I know you can still buy them on Amazon and Newegg. I'm not sure. I haven't tried to go look to buy a Nexus phone since the Pixel was announced, but they did announce they're going to stop the Nexus program. Yeah, so uh, whenever they actually do stop, which might already be now, it's only 18 months left, although uh, that's a reasonable lifetime on my phone because I think I've had my phone for 18 months or so now, and so that'll add up to three years. I, could, uh, I would love 24, to be honest, but 18 seems reasonable. Well, that's 18 after they stop selling it, and they're probably they, – most phones were going to be for sale for at least uh, at least six months, right? So, yeah, you're still guaranteed 24, but uh, it sounds more like it'll be three years, which seems like a reasonable amount of yeah, time. Yeah, I guess so. It does, uh, yeah. But, you know, my bigger question is what am I going to buy next? I think you're going to have to get a Pixel. Uh, no. <laughs> you don't know? I don't want to pay that much for a phone. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's a thing. That is a thing. Yeah. You know, I always thought I already, you know, I was already, you know, six hundred fifty dollars for the Nexus here was kind of bad, and I was like, well, it is, you know, giant Nexus six, mm-hmm. but I don't know. Yeah, I feel I, like I shouldn't have to pay that much to get a phone that's going to be patched and not terrible. That's that. That'll be my. That'll be the biggest, I think, disappointment I have with them ending the Nexus program is you could get a Nexus five X for, for oftentimes for really great prices on sale, and it's a five X is still a perfectly good phone. Um, and I thought that was amazing. And I thought, you know, even if it's not the best smartphone out there, if I can get an f- unlocked smartphone under $400 that I can put on the carrier of my choice, that's that's a great phone. That right there is an enabling phone. And so I was a little disappointed to see that, yeah, what, they're going to like $750 for the $650, I think, for the cheapest. It's double the price of a, what I could get a 5X for. But it looks like a nice phone. So I guess that's. Well, I haven't looked that closely at it, but I've just, you know, I saw that. Sticker price for like a thousand plus dollars. And I was like, nope. Yeah, if you want to get reasonable storage, you know, you want to get the bigger one. You know, your your price is going to get well, up there. You know, I don't need that much storage. I don't walk around with a music library on my phone. But yeah. anyway, uh, so Motorola's phone unit was recently sold to Lenovo, yeah. which has had this to say recently. Uh, we understand that keeping phones up to date with security patches is important to our customers, and we strive to push security updates as quickly as we can. We work with our carrier partners, software providers, and other partners to extensively test patches before they are delivered, which can be in various forms such as pure security maintenance releases, uh, scheduled maintenance releases, and OS upgrades. Hmm. Uh, in August, Motorola said it uh, couldn't promise its flagship Moto Z and Moto, 4, uh, Moto G4 would receive monthly Android security updates. Instead, Motorola said updates would be quarterly which is at least something, you know, monthly would definitely be better uh, and they need to solve their process problem if they can't do monthly. Uh, but at least quarterly is something better than never. Yeah, right? yeah. I w- uh, I just... Samsung and LG said that they have committed to monthly security updates for their new handsets. HTC uh, did not respond to a request for comment for the story. So it seems like new phones are going to definitely be getting monthly updates except for some that will maybe only be quarterly. But... Maybe we're actually finally rounding the corner on this problem. I hope so. I really do because it's always it always has struck me as a technological problem. I mean, I'm sorry. It's always struck me as a solvable technological problem and more of a bureaucratic yeah, company it's problem. Yeah, bureaucratic and process problem. Right? Yeah, software T- development life cycle. Technologically, we can fix this, and we we but can solve this. It sounds like if if we just taught a bunch of phone developers a class on how to use version control, whether it's SBN <laughs> or Git or whatever. <laughs> then we would solve this problem. Oh, I like it. <laughs> it's like, you know, 
Every, every software developer needs to take a one-year course on using version control ah, properly. I love it. It's one of the greatest things you can learn from open source is how to properly use version control Preach and it. merge other people's stuff. Preach it, Alan. Preach it. Uh, I, when, when I hired people to work on a website um, at, at a startup, it, everyone claimed they knew how to use SVN. And they all could check stuff in and check stuff out. Although... If, if they got a merge conflict, they were like, oh, no, what do I do? <laughs> um, but then when it came to, so, you know, we have a dev branch, well, let's merge, it, merge, it into Q, merge the changes into QA. Or, oh, you want to work on that new feature. Create a dev branch to do it in so that, you know, if we want to push a, a fix to dev, we don't have to send your new feature out half-baked or something, right? It's like, it's, it's fairly simple how to do this stuff. Yeah, for real. Um, none of them could do it. Even even after I was finished with that project, I got paid for like an hour once every four weeks to come in and merge their stuff to production for them. Yeah, they couldn't do it. I um, I have I well, I resisted resisted it myself so, for a while. So, someone in the the uh, chat room just said Alan could write a book on this and sell it. It's like Subversion has a book. It's free. It's <laughs> on the internet in its entirety, and it's free. I linked them to the. It's like. Five pages at most on how to do SVN merge in the workflow with having branches. And they're like, well, don't just tell me to read this fucking manual. <laughs> tell me how to do it. It's like <laughs> they have really good examples in the documentation and they have graphics. Yeah. I couldn't explain it any better. Yeah. Just read it. And yeah. they're like, yeah. telling us to go read the manual. It's like, that's what the manual is for. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Preach it. Uh, Google's also trying to solve this problem by completely going around the manufacturers and the carriers. Uh, with the release of Android 7.0, called Nougat, uh, Google has attempted to become more self-reliant by creating independent apps that would otherwise be parts of the Android core OS and be baked in features. For example, uh, Google recently introduced its new Allo and Duo, which apparently is the replacement for Hangout. Where are they getting these names? This doesn't make any sense. I know. And they now have, anyway, you the know, when you get an features, Android phone, it comes with three text messaging programs right now. It comes with text message, Hangouts, and Allo, if you get a new Android phone. And what's Duo? <laughs> oh, and Duo. Yeah, Duo. Right. Duo. So Allo is a chat program that, also, that has Google Assistant built in, and Duo, ah, and Duo is... is the video chat. Hangouts. Yeah. In video, yeah. no, it's just video chat. Like, more like FaceTime. Ah. Well, they say formerly Hangouts in the message. Anyway. Uh, so they have all these messaging features. Each one's a separate standalone app so that they can push updates to them to everybody's phone without having to go through the carriers. Uh, yeah. But I think the biggest problem is that, the, you know, we had this old culture before Android of your carrier stuck their brand name on everything in your phone. Right, you turn on the phone and it shows your carrier's logo and all this stuff from the the age where phones were locked to a carrier. Yeah, and your carrier's um, jingle plays as it boots up. Yeah, all that stuff. And the carriers are like, yeah, well, we don't want to have to restamp every security update. Uh, and it turns out that you need to. So either piss off with the branding or do the work. Yeah, did you hear there will be Verizon branding if you buy a Pixel through Verizon? It's going to be Verizon yeah. branding, and, and the updates and will come that, through Verizon. That, that Verizon branding, how much lag does that add to the security patches? They say they're going to try to have them. They got, This is a bit of a controversy. We'll see, right? We will see. And uh, I could see Verizon getting – the monthly updates, I think, will come from Google. Big OS updates come from Verizon. And I could see, like, when, when, when Android 8 ships, I could see Verizon taking a little while to get that out. Well, you know, your phone carrier does – it probably – didn't ever think they were going to need a whole development team to constantly update old phones. 
they don't they're like no but there's no money for us in old phones so we just force people to buy new ones it's like nah, yeah actually not i, work. I do not agree cool. but i also feel like maybe they could have gotten the message five years ago because it's we're like seven eight nine years into this now and they still haven't quite figured it out that's starting to get inexcusable at this point mm-hmm. you know um i know you have a couple you have a couple more things to say on that right on nope, this that was that was okay. the end of it uh, it's just this way google can push out software updates uh to any of those apps that they need it without having to get sure you know, go it's also a convenient way to discontinue support for the open source version that shipped with Android and then close source the application and ship it via the Play Store, requiring people to have the Play APIs, to have the Play Store, and so you no longer get a good text message client or camera program or photo management program without having all of the Google services. So there's that, too. Yeah, They, they yeah, are able yeah. now to update them independently of the OS. That is true. But they're also now no longer useful, maintaining yeah, the, the upstream is- open source apps. Yeah, it's like you you don't get the open source Android app uh, photo app. You get the Google Photos app, which is like, oh, I, I'm backing up all your photos to the cloud right now and then processing them and, and gaining information out of them. It's like, actually, could you not? Thanks. Yeah, I just want to view my photo library. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there's a it's like, it's What a if I want to take sword. a photo I don't want Google to have? <laughs> This is my main issue with Android. So really, if I want a secure uh, Android device that I know is going to get updates, I pretty much at this point going forward have to buy a Pixel. So there's that. And then I well, have to... Know, Samsung and, and LG are promising that they're going to do monthly updates. We'll have to see. Yeah, maybe maybe I'll have to wait a year or two to see how that actually plays but out. But the other problem is that... You know, it's not just security gonna... updates. It's also OS updates. Right. Well, Although the OSs seem to iterate a little less frequently. Yearly, now, so. right? They seem to ship by one every year. I don't know. I guess we'll just wait a little bit and see how it goes. In the meantime, I'm going to hang out at Ting. TechSnap.Ting.com. This is really how mobile should be. They don't get in the way of the updates. They don't have a Ting-branded uh, image that they have to ship on their handsets. The idea of that is ludicrous because Ting is built by geeks, people that are really into this stuff. TechSnap.Ting.com. Take $25 off a device or get $25 in service credit. Now, I love Ting because they have CDMA and GSM networks, so whatever stronger in your area you bring, plus that means more devices are usually compatible. Check out their BYOD page for that. An average Ting line is 23 bucks. Well, our, our deal gives you $25 in service credit if you bring a device. So that's going to pay for more than your first month of Ting service. And if you ever get stuck, you get to speak to a real human being. They have a fantastic dashboard. It's better than any other carrier's dashboard to manage all of this. I wouldn't even, I mean, a dashboard undersells it. It really is the tools you need to manage your Ting account, all the kind of things you might want to do. They also have some great posts. So if you just want to check out Ting, see how much you might save, go over to techsnap.ting.com, try out their savings calculator. How, what would you save by clicking that? And while you're there, if you're kind of like Alan and you're thinking, geez, I don't want to spend $800 on my next smartphone, they have what they call five wise smartphone choices for less than $200. They did a blog post about the different phones you can get on Ting. Now, these are no contracts, no early termination fee. You just pay for what you use. $6 for the line and then your usage on top of that. Remember, I mentioned the 5X, too. Go get CDMA or GSM, whichever you prefer. Buy it directly from Play or get it over at the Ting site. Why not? You're still going to get updates for 18 more months. These things are still selling. Also, I guess if you wanted to go cray-cray, Ting's already promoting the Google Pixel. So it looks like the Pixel's going to work on, I would imagine, too, right? I would just buy it from the Play Store. Unlocked, move it over there, try it out. TechSnap.Ting.com, you get a $25 service credit. See how it goes. TechSnap.Ting.com, and a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. TechSnap.Ting.com. You know, 
talk just that discussion. It's really sort of under underlines why I think it's important to vote with your wallet. I think yep. that I think that that ting that ting service is looking more and more important all the time to have somewhere you can go to say this is how it should be. So speaking of how it should be, uh, episode 163, from time to time, Mr. Cantrell should be returning to the show because everybody loves it. This looks like it was a fun one. I only got to ca- catch the very beginning on the live stream, so I will probably be downloading this after the yes. show. Because uh, the interview went on for over an hour. It was yeah. great stuff. <laughs> yeah, it was. I, I, uh, was, I was in studio while it was going on, so I was watching the live stream out of the corner of my eye, and he was very animated. <laughs> yes. Well, he's always very animated, but... Um, we almost made him stroke out when we just were like uh, serverless unikernel uh, system D and go. <laughs> just watch him twitching. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, all kinds of uh, great stuff. We talked about um, you know what's wrong with Linux. Um, sure, sure. Uh, the OpenBSD or sorry, the OpenZFS Dev Summit. Uh, the power of small communities and why sometimes that's better. Um, we talked about lots of other stuff uh, and also. He's got an upcoming conference that he's running this December uh, called Systems We Love. So uh, he did a, uh, did a, a meetup group called Papers We Love where they do readings of uh, you know, computer science papers. And Cantrell oh. uh, uh, went to New York and did one about um, FreeBSD jails and uh, Solaris zones. Um, and he basically kind of talked through this uh, computer science research and how we actually applied that to real production systems and invented containers. Uh, because, you know, a lot of people don't know the history of, you know, containers have been around for 15 years and how yeah. they came to be and what the features are. Uh, and he liked that so much that he decided that what we need was a conference where we just talk about systems we love, where, you know, practitioners and people that actually sysadmins and people that run systems and build systems uh, could talk about them without having to write a whole paper or something. Uh, so, yeah, it's systemswe.love, uh, and that's a conference he's got going on. Uh, in December in San Francisco, uh, and it'll be quite interesting. That sounds like it was a fascinating chat. Episode 163 yes. of the BC Now program. Go get the HD version because we're about the halfway point in this show. And uh, it's a longer one, so we'll, we'll make sure to take a little bit longer so you have time to download the whole thing. That way you don't have to go a moment today without a little Jude in your face. Go check it out, BST Now, episode 163. And with the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Feedback. Sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or pop in that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website, or maybe you asked our community at techsnap.reddit.com. Well, we have a whole batch of emails, Alan, and before we even get into them, we should probably disclose that coming up on October 27th, we'll be recording a mm-hmm. double TechSnap. And so if you don't hear your email read today, it could be that we're holding it, but we also need a lot more emails. So we need yep. emails for next week's show, and on the 27th, we'll be doing a double snap. So lots of emails, good chance to get your question asked, but we have a good batch to get into right now. Let's start with JP's email. JP writes in, mm-hmm. he says, Hello, guys, and good day from down under. After hearing about how great FreeNAS and ZFS are, I thought I would finally give it a try. <laughs> I think JP is reflective of a lot of people in the audience. Mm-hmm. He says, I wanted to go with something simple. I don't need a lot. You know, I have a laptop and a couple of external USB drives. The idea was to test the concept before sinking some real money into it. All I want is a mirrored file server for cold files. 
My laptop is nearing 100% full, and my phone and my camera SD cards are as well. So I got free NAS running on an old laptop off a USB stick. It's an 8-gig one with a 2-1-terabyte external drives that are mirrored. So far, so good. My first trouble was setting up the permissions so I don't have to log in when hitting the file share from my Windows box. Do you have any hints here? Uh, biggest hint there is create a username and password on the free NAS that are the same as your Windows 1, and Windows will log you in automatically. Okay. Okay, yeah. That's actually a great That's tip. Easy, easy same username, get. same password, and then you don't even have to do SMB ad for uh, free NAS, right? It'll just... Uh, right. Uh, and then that way you can... Uh, it just works. That's what I do here. Also, you can look at the share settings. You can set the mm -hmm. file permission creation and folder permission creation so that they automatically get created with the rights that you want. So look around with that too. Yeah. Right. But, but here's, that's, that's the biggest one. To, you know, if you use a different username and password, then you're going to get the prompt all the time. If you use the same one, Windows will just authenticate for you. Yeah. And okay, now here's where you, this is. This is kind of interesting. He says, "My uh, while trying to get my permissions right, I noticed that my laptop, which is running FreeNAS, was getting hotter and hotter as it runs." A quick Google reveals that the CLI I need to get temps. I um, uh, he was getting temps from this uh, from this command line, and he says he's pushing ninety degrees Celsius. A short while later, the laptop crashes and it can't boot until the CPU cools down a bit. Which is odd. I wonder how old the laptop is because newer, like anything modern, normally will scale the processor speed back automatically when you start getting to that temperature to avoid ever crashing and never getting to the point where it can't boot because it overheated like that. Um, and he said he is having the same problem under Linux as well, so it's probably mostly hardware-related. There's I'm a couple of things here. Do you think, do you think um, it's possible that because it's a USB, because there's two USB devices, maybe it's a software RAID, there's just a lot of load on the CPU when talking to the disk because USB um, uses the CPU? The, there's some of that, but I think it's mostly just... Um, it sounds like this hardware is expecting this the OS to control the fan, but that doesn't seem right either because that definitely isn't the default in Windows either. Yeah, it's not a Mac, um, right? I mean, that, so that's... yeah, you you might be able to do something to to force the fan up. The other thing you could do is um, very similar to the command you're doing to monitor the temperature. You can do uh, like dev .cpu .freak, uh and set the CPU frequency and basically permanently underclock it. Because you're not going to need all that much CPU performance on it's the true. FreeNAS, and by forcing it down, you'll you'll keep it from overheating. You know, sometimes just even doing the basics of um, uh, clocking it down one or two notches uh, will be enough. Um, that's a good. That's a really good tip because you don't really need all that CPU. Well, in particular, so uh, Intel CPUs have Turbo Boost, especially the very first generations of i7s and so on. It would get really really hot during Turbo Boost. So, you know, if, if you have a 3.6 gigahertz processor, when you look at the list of allowed frequencies, there'll be 3,600 and then 3,601, which means allow turbo boost. Mm. And so if you set it to 3,600, it'll just never turbo boost and won't get really hot that sure. way. You know, Alan, but our, if you clock it down to, say, 2.5 or whatever, then yeah. it'll... RMH in the chat room points out that if it's a laptop, it could be a laptop with dual graphics and the... You don't. You're not. Uh, maybe disable. Maybe disable the proprietary graphics. Use the Intel graphics. Yep. Generates way uh, less that heat. That could also make a big difference. Could check into that. Yep. All right. So uh, he Often says in the BIOS there's a setting for that. I didn't think of that. Uh, my laptop has that even. I have a built-in NVIDIA with also an Intel. And if I'm trying to save battery, I'll kill the NVIDIA and run just the Intel. Uh, especially now that FreeBSD had drivers for it. Back when I first got the laptop, uh, when it was brand new. Uh, there weren't Intel drivers for Linux and BSD yet, but there are now. 
Uh, so I used to use the NVIDIA driver because it had, or NVIDIA graphics that had the driver and better performance, but the Intel gives me better battery life. Uh, so yeah, obviously you won't have this problem when you get a real machine that you're putting hard drives in uh, as well. But yeah, in the meantime, you can uh, use the dev.cpu.0.freq F-R-E-Q, to lower the CPU frequency and uh, avoid the overheating. Uh, you can also run PowerD to automatically scale up and down, but that you could still overheat in that case. Yeah. So he, JP had a final question, and I've, I don't, I can't think of anything not off the top of my head, but he asks, have you heard of anybody reflashing uh, Cisco routers with FreeBSD images? <clears throat> the Cisco uh, routers often use very specialized CPUs that there aren't generic setups for. Uh, like I think most of them are probably MIPS and they're relatively specific to Cisco. So I'm not aware of anybody managing to do that. Yeah, so. I I was trying to think like uh uh I was trying to think like a maybe like a tomato or DDR no. No, I mean not, not, not on, on the routers. Cisco. Not on the not, not on, on like not the, the bigger Cisco yeah. devices. Ninety degrees Celsius though, damn. I'd be curious, JP, if you manage to get that temperature down, let us know what you did. I would I like I like I like Alan's suggestion of CPU throttling. Look at the graphics. I mean, just play with it and see but what yeah, works like best the for you. The BIOS should be doing automatic thermal throttling. Uh, if it's not, I'm guessing your laptop is quite old. Uh, and so, yeah, just forcing the CPU yeah. temperature down or the CPU frequency down. Like uh, my i5 that's in my file server, I think goes down to 1.2 or 1.6 gigahertz is the lowest it'll do. And I mostly just leave it there all the time to save power. I'm not worried about temperature in the machine in my basement, but I am worried yeah. about power. Now, if you have a question... I remember how I was just asking for more questions. If you have a question like JP's, a couple of things that would be super helpful. If you told us what type of CPU it was, um, if you told us what type of laptop it was, or how the any of those kinds of hardware details, because we're kind of flying blind here. We don't know if uh, JP's talking about an i7. We don't know if he's talking about a Core 2 Duo. There's a whole range we could be dealing with here. So that kind of information does help us give you a better answer. And uh, what I would recommend is do a brief question. And then if you want to just do a hardware summary at the bottom, just... Yes, that works better because like, uh, uh, then we can refer to it, but we don't have to try to... Yeah. Uh, Thor know. is going to ask a question here. And look, Alan, right there at the bottom, he even used Markdown. He broke down his uh, hardware there. So we have kind of an idea what to work with. So let me start with Thor here. He says, uh, and, and by the way, I did also ask for questions. I, I, I will never, ever, ever get tired of home server questions. I love home server questions. I love how you guys are using them, what, what you want to set up. I never get bored of them. So if you have a home server question for there, our double recordings coming up, please do send that in. But Thor you know, writes I've been in doing, this I've been doing home servers uh, since you know I got my, my second computer. They're so Since awesome. I, the first, as soon as I had a second computer, it was like I want a home server. The thing about a, a th the thing about a great home server setup is if you nail it and you get it just right, it actually makes your life a little bit easier. And when you but can it's use also the playground you need to learn. learn things. Yes, exactly. Yes, well said. All right. So Thor says, uh, first things first, I want to build a home server and buy the necessary hardware. But he's learning and getting set up right now with an Acer H340 home NAS box. Okay. He says, I want to start by buying hard drives, but what's the best file system and operating system to use so I can migrate the drives to the new hardware once I have the funds? And I think it's important to understand what he's dealing with. The Acer H340 has an Intel Atom processor at 1.6 gigahertz. And that's a, it's a, a, three, a 230, so that's a very old, like very early generation Intel Atom. Yeah, 2 gigs uh, of RAM, DDR2. Mm-hmm. 
uh, four disk drives and his USB ports and an eSATA. Yeah. A uh, couple things. That Atom might be old enough that it's 32-bit only. I'm not sure on that one. I can check if for it you. If it is, then ZFS is out of the question for that. Um, if it is 64-bit, then yes, free now is ZFS. ZFS is the best file system for being able to take your hard drives out and put them somewhere else. Because uh, ZFS even goes so far as working on big Indian and little Indian hardware. Ah, it is and, it is 64-bit. I'm looking on okay, the Intel page. Yes. Yep. Perfect. Free NAS, problem solved. It's the only way to be able to move your hard drives and be able to put them in FreeBSD, Linux, Illumos, Solaris, anything you can think of. Even OS X has uh, OpenZFS as a, a thing you can install. And so it's really the best way to be able to have your hard drives where you can move them, not just when you want to upgrade your home NAS, but if something explodes and you need to get the data off the disks, almost any computer in your house will be able to hook up to these hard drives and pull the How data off. How do you feel about two gigs of RAM? That's a bit low. Now, to start with, you can do that and, you know, uh, until you can get more. You know, if you can put more in that machine, that's great. And he says he just got four gigs off eBay. That, but four gigs is probably the smallest you want to go. He didn't say how big the hard drives you get now are. Oh, he looks like he's starting with 1.5 terabytes. Yeah, and, and also uh, a 500 gigabyte in a mirror, too. So, yeah. Uh, so, you know, that, that it'll work. But eventually, you really want to... Uh, Make sure you're you're getting more RAM for that. He, he um, had a he had a question regarding FreeNAS versus Open Media Vault. When it comes to CPU speed and RAM usage, do you think there's going to be much of a difference there? Uh, I'm not very familiar with Open Media Vault. I just recently, I just recently, well, all of them, all of them. It does it'll do ZFS on Linux. Um, right. Uh, so using ZFS, uh, you know, comparing ZFS FreeNAS to Open Media Vault. Um, the FreeNAS version of ZFS might be slightly ahead because uh, ZFS on Linux is a little bit behind, but not that much. Uh, in that case, you're you're fairly equivalent, although uh, FreeNAS has been doing ZFS for a lot longer and, and probably is a little more integrated. And because FreeNAS only supports ZFS, it's really, really, really geared towards ZFS. Hmm. Um, I think, but, you know, you know I'm just I, a BSD guy. I'm always going to pick FreeNAS. But well, here's how I break it down. As a Linux, at least here, use ZFS. As a, as a Linux guy, honestly, I'll tell you how I think about it. If you're going to tinker and you want to read your if you want to tinker and play with stuff, Open Media Vault is great. It's it's got a good heritage, it's fine. What I really like about FreeNAS is if it's something that is I want it to be an appliance, I want it to be rock solid and I want something that's going to last. I want to think about this every 3 to 5 years. What I really like about FreeNAS is it's got it's got a long track record and it's got a really solid company behind it. So those are two things that I now long I no longer have to worry about. And when it comes to my data, I like not worrying a and lot. And the other thing is, I, I don't know about Open Media Vault, but FreeNAS, the operating system, FreeNAS, is completely separate from your data. If you put FreeNAS on a USB stick and that USB stick dies, you just make a new one and boot FreeNAS hmm. and it imports your data and it's all there. I did it's not test fine, that, but no I, problem. I, I have tested that with FreeNAS and I have been... I have been blown away by how how great that works. So that is a that is a really good point because, uh, especially if you get like well, a free NAS mini. In, in, like in his case, he wants to be able to later pull the hard drives out of his yeah. little atom thing, put them in a real server, yeah. and have it just work. And it will with free NAS. Yes, yes, yes. If you're going to move down the road, absolutely. I have done that. I have personally tested that, and I can tell you that free NAS really remarkable. The great thing about free NAS is you could totally f up the free NAS installation, and your data is. Totally fine. You can you can achieve that with Open Media Vault, but you lose a couple of things. You lose a couple of configuration things that are sort of important. You can do it, um, but it's not as smooth. Open Media Vault is based on Debian, 
So if you're more familiar with Debian and you do want to go under the hood and maybe install a few user land tools, you want to configure a few things using the command line, I find that the Open Media Vault route is a better one because it doesn't break the overall interface as much and it's Debian, so there's tons of guides. But if you want that appliance, totally reliable, don't think about it, great plugins available, FreeNAS is the way to go. Yep. Just depends on your use case. All right. Yeah. Uh, and he also uh, quickly had a question about um, he was looking at eight terabyte hard drives. Oh, uh, yeah. Make sure you don't get shingled. You want regular hard drives, not the shingled archive only drives, because uh, those are terabyte. Uh, <laughs> okay. But, uh, for a little while, they were the only eight terabytes you could get. Yeah, I remember now talking about it. You just have to make sure that now there are real regular eight terabyte hard drives, but you have to make sure you're getting that, not the archive only ones. The archive only ones would usually say archive only or shingled or, or like no raid or something like that. Okay. Um, but yes, uh, he he asked about maybe buying one Seagate and one Western Digital so they don't die at the same time. That's uh, relatively not a bad plan. In general, hard drives, if they last the first 36 or 48 hours, they're probably going to last a couple of years. But, um, you know, there is always random failures. There is some advantage to buying different ones. Um, uh there's also some advantage but, to buying know, the same one in terms on of firmware. The same one, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes there's an advantage to getting both. Yeah. Uh, but the same. All right. But You're, yeah, whatever you want to do there, uh, it'll be fine. You ready for Ben? Yes. So Ben's got like the opposite question than we normally get. He says, uh, so this may be super counterintuitive and opposite of what most people, except for maybe three-letter agencies, want. But I'm looking for a way to strip all encryption for an entire network. He's talking to everything, Alan. SSL, SSH, etc. The reason for stripping encryption is that it's intended for an amateur ham radio mesh network that is currently in the experiment stage in my area. And uh, the wireless spectrum used, so this is part of a ham requirement. The wireless spectrum used by FCC Part 15 Wi-Fi equipment in the U.S., partially overlaps the spectrum that will be used and licensed by amateur radio operators. This is really neat because hams can build Wi-Fi networks using frequencies that aren't clogged up using off-the-shelf hardware. Hams can also run these networks at higher power than Part 15 Wi-Fi. In order to do this, however, the network must comply with FCC Part 97 rules. The biggest two are transmitting stations need to identify the operator's call sign every 10 minutes. This is easily accomplished by changing the Mac of a radio or sending a ping packet with the call sign as data. But also, encryption of any kind, number two, is not allowed. This is a holdover from World War I and World War II and the Cold War, Cold War, where the U.S. government was concerned about spies using radio transmissions to send data home, much like they fear the Internet now. So he cannot use encryption as part of being a ham radio operator. Individual c client computer clouds, I suppose, disable encryption for various devices connecting over this network. Uh, so that's what the ham Seattle area ham WAN does. This is I, this is fascinating. I had no idea. Um, so he has any questions about he has I, he wants our ideas for a way to look at network level solutions that will allow traffic egressing uh, on a network and remove the encryption, some sort of proxy or internet handoff, maybe. Yeah, so in order, to, hmm, in order to do that, what you would have to do is have an SSL, uh, use SSL strip or something on basically the router that all these machines are using to access the internet. Uh, and so every client machine would have to trust the fake certificate you gave the stripper to rip all the SSL off of everything. Your big problem here is, that would mean if somebody goes to check their email, their username and password would be going over the air in the clear. So you're probably better off trying to block most encrypted things than actually trying to decrypt them. 
because if people are expecting to use encryption for something, it might you really might not want to remove the encryption for them and just you know push it through anyway. If you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So that's it. Um. Hmm. Yeah, I'm. I'm quite sure that the FCC rules on this never really considered people browsing the internet over it and and SSL. Uh, Wouldn't you? you yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd have to. You definitely have to have access to all the client machines. Right. So you'd have to. Basically, there are SSL intercept type things you can do. Uh, you know, when I originally just read the subject of this client I, I, or the email, I was thinking, you know, uh, my friend's company makes this appliance that strips SSL off so that you can feed the traffic into your monitoring tools that maybe don't support SSL so that they can scan stuff for viruses. But if you want to send everything, um, so yeah, there's a tool called SSL strip that can do some stuff and the other stuff, I think really your goal is going to have to be maybe blocking like HTTPS outright. Um, because you don't want people going logging into their Gmail over this Wi-Fi where anybody can capture the traffic and uh, um, see their username and password going back. Yeah, I was uh, I was just thinking of maybe like a like a like a like a sort of setup like a uh, like I've done on a Windows network once before where the, there is an SSL in, man in the middle where he strips off all SSL and looks at the traffic. There's something like that that could be done, but yeah. So that's what uh, SSL strip does. It's yeah. a tool, you know, for and tricking people on Wi-Fi. There, the bigger a, problem is that you'd have uh, you have to get the certificate that SSL strip uses when intercepting trusted on all the client machines, or you can just allow the big scary warning whenever somebody tries to use encryption, and maybe that's actually your solution is that you know. Uh, you you issue a self signed certificate mm. that specifically says you know as the the name of the company or whatever is all encryption's not allowed. I'm going to strip all your encryption. Don't go forward with this connection if there's anything private over this connection or something like that. All right, all right. You know I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna think on this too because it's a it's a really great idea. It's a really interesting question. Yeah, it was, it's you know uh, it was one of the things that came up recently is like you know hams are really important in cases. Uh, like natural disasters where the regular uh, phone lines maybe are down and we need these long distance communication links to get things like, you know, tell your family you're okay or uh, someone help and things like that where we need the long distance communication and we can't depend on the traditional landlines. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Are you ready for our last minute oh, yes. submission? The of the government show? should just get out of the way on that one, but <laughs> it does feel like a holdover, doesn't it? Yeah. But yeah. yeah, what are you going to do? RMH with a last-minute submission via the chat room. But he selects it himself, so how could I say no? He says, hi there, Alan and Chris. I want to set up a guest network in a few rooms, and I want to rent it out. Basically, they get their own uh, WLAN router, which is attached to my network. In my part of the network, I have a static IP with a television set up. Satellite to IP television. Oh, satellite to IP television. Basically, a box with four LNBs making a multicast playlist on its own IP. LNB, Alan? Yes, it's the receive, land side receiver for satellite. Okay. How can I get that multicast signal and the signal of switching channels to and back and forth out of the guest network so they too can have their very own satellite IP television? Can I use routing tables? And if so, what do I need to set up for that in my network and the guest network? For reasons of how the cables are strut throughout the wall, this is the only feasible option for me. I can't lay another Cat5 from the satellite dish to the guest accommodation. <laughs> 
This probably is going to come down to your Switch. Uh, I'm not that familiar with multicast because it's not used in very many things other than like satellite TV distribution for IPTV. Um, there, some switches can do automatic VLAN stuff where you can allow certain traffic to get into other VLANs. So you'd have, uh, you know, each room in the house would have its own VLAN and they'd all be trunked back to your router that goes out to the internet. Uh, and so on your PF sensor, whatever that's running your internet connection, it'll see separate interfaces for each network from each of the different rooms that you're renting out. Uh, but the switch will let the multicast traffic go into them. Uh, or maybe, yeah, you might be able to do some kind of multicast proxy or something to push the packets. That's what I was, is there, um, what, what would that be though? Yeah, I'm not that familiar with multicast and how to actually do this. That is a very good question. Yeah, uh, sadly, I, I think you need someone that's got more. This is a very sp- specific knowledge domain that I don't have much background. I'm not sure how much success he's going to have in answering this question. Well, there's definitely should be a way to do it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I hmm. still feel like, though, this is... It, it, it basically, I think it's going to depend on having a smart enough switch that can actually handle uh, multicast and putting the packets in the right VLANs or whatever. I think there's another way to crack this particular egg myself. I, I don't know. But for, for me, if I had a room where I was renting out and I wanted to offer them a television service, I think I would probably just invest the time in setting up something that was under my own control and manageable by myself. Um, and I have a couple of different ideas, but some of them might not be technically legal. But there's a lot of ways you could do this. So I, I would I would maybe consider a few. Right, but it seems like he's already got this set up, and it probably worked until he tried yeah. to segregate the network into multiple pieces. Sure. But I think it's just a matter of the switch. Uh, there's some auto. There's like multicast snooping or, or GRM something. What's it called? <laughs> what about also restructuring the way the network was? So instead of isolating them out, create a, a uh, maybe this is the land that some of these th- some of these things are shared, and then isolate out your own machines onto their own separate network. So sort of reverse the way this is segregated. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Maybe people can uh, let us know. Give us your ideas. Techsnap.reddit.com. There'll be a feedback thread for IGMP 288. snooping is often what it's called. Hmm. Uh, IGMP snooping is the process of listening for internet group messaging protocol network traffic. Maybe this isn't what he wants. Yeah. Ah. A switch will, by default, flood multicast traffic to all ports in the broadcast domain or the VLAN equivalent. Multicast can cause unnecessary load on host devices, and so this is a protocol for the switch to know where people actually care. Uh, ah, it's, it's often used for multicast for IPTV. So, yes, it might be the feature you want to look into mm. is IGMP snooping. There you go. So RMH says he's going to submit it to the subreddit. So if you do have a thought on this, look for his post, techsnap.reddit.com. And uh, get your questions into us. Some good ones this week. Some, some mm-hmm. definitely off-the-wall questions. Some, of our, some, some in our zone, but some that are totally off-the-wall. And I'd love to have more. Techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Uh, it's, it's like I'm BSD now. We often like getting questions we don't know the answer to. Maybe someone in the audience does and can write in yeah. for next week. And Why not? Hey. Someone's brought it to me. He has the answer to this question. Yeah, it's actually kind of it's kind of a fun process for us. Yeah, and uh, he's going to put it up in our subreddit so that people can find it and uh, post stuff up. Pow. All right. So go to jupiterbroadcasting.com, click the contact link, choose TechSnap from the dropdown, and send us in your question for next week's episode. And we may or may not have an answer, but at least we'll all have a great conversation. Well, 
Welcome to the Tech Snap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Another roundup for stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still want to give you some links to follow up on your own after the show. And some of these links came from our intelligence network over at techsnap.reddit.com. But the first one this week, well, that just came from my extreme amount of all of a sudden, what a brilliant boost of productivity I had. Yes, that's right. Telegram was down this morning. <laughs> and it was mostly affecting North America and Latin America. I guess the cooling system died in one of their data centers. They had extreme overheating. The data is okay, but the, de- de- the servers themselves, they went down. Yeah, it seems like, uh, you know, I thought you should have a strategy for that where you shut down a lot of servers you don't need. But I don't know, like every time data centers I've been in, they're like, yeah, we're going to shut down one of the air conditioners for maintenance. And so we brought in a bunch of portable things and we have people around monitoring the temperature and we're, you know, we don't expect the temperature to get more than five degrees above normal. And if it does, then we'll take this action. And This has been an interesting thing. Uh, during the outage... What's really interesting there is they seem to only... They run all the traffic for North America out of one data center? A single data center, yeah. It's like a bad plan. <laughs> DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code SNAPOcean. <laughs> Multiple U.S. data centers. Yeah. <laughs> you do Toronto, New York, and San Francisco. Be protected. I saw this all over Twitter, and Telegram actually had to respond to it. I guess when Tele- Telegram hasn't gone down a lot. And so the average person's response apparently was to delete the app and reinstall it and try to set it up, which just DDoS them even more. So uh, Telegram just uh, tweeted, hashtag tip, in case we ever have any issues, remember, reinstalling the app never helps. And thanks to everyone for the kind words. And then uh, Telegram furthers that up with, reinstalling the app is akin to bombing out a bar instead of just punching somebody in the face. Bombing the bars instead of punching them in the face, um, but yeah. So they. So if yeah. if for some reason unprofessionalism, but anyway, <laughs> I like it. I like it. It was kind of they were very. They they had a good amount of levity during the outage, uh, but they also were very good about tweeting people that were asking them about specific questions about the outage. They actually replied pretty consistently. Mm-hmm. So sometimes they said a few things that might be a little, you know, out there, but at least they're responding to an outage. What do you think about this one? Microsoft is patching five zero days that are currently out in the wild. Yep. Uh, that kind of meshes a bit more with the uh, story we have coming up. Mm. But you'll notice you didn't get five patches. Uh, oh, yes. Yes, five big zero days from Microsoft. And then Adobe also released 81 fixes for uh, a combination of Acrobat, Reader, and Flash. So update all of your things. And speaking of updating all of your things, Adobe has fixed 81 vulnerabilities in Acrobat, Reader, and Flash. Sorry, I just what? said that. Oh, oh, you did? Oh. 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 Well, okay, uh, apparently, Telegram is a two-man operation. That's what I was FAQ. reading in the chat room, too, which so. I, I don't... How could that be? How can that be? Can't be. Well, you know. Can't be. I disagree. I That's what I, as I just said in the chat room. Well, I disagree. WhatsApp's team is like 20... People? I think it takes like one person just to tweet that much. <laughs> well, yeah, that was well. That's why it wasn't getting fixed. Right. Yeah. Now. <laughs> all right. All right. So uh, BitTorrent is reportedly firing its CEOs as it gets out of the media game. It's going to just yes. BitTorrent is finally going to figure out that BitTorrent is not where people want to go to buy movies. Huh. Seems like the rest of us figured that out quite a while ago. Yeah. 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 Uh, <clears throat> how about this? How about this one? New Open S- Open SSL double free and invalid free vulnerabilities. Hmm, it's free, everybody, in uh, X509. Yeah. <clears throat> this one's interesting because OpenSSL has decided not to do a CVE number for these because <clears throat> the attacks are caused 
when attempting to allocate memory or create a new thread fails, which normally wouldn't happen. But if someone manages to, you know, run your system out of memory and then do this, then they could exploit the bug. Hmm. Because go. it would require that amount of setup, uh, OpenS is like, yeah, we're not going to do a vulnerability number and everything for it. We'll just fix it in the next version. Maybe that wasn't the right call. We'll have to see. Those of you considering migrating off of Yahoo, that task might have just been made a slight bit more challenging. Yahoo is turning off its email forwarding service. After literally having it in production for 20 years, Yahoo has declared that the feature is in development. <laughs> and they've taken it offline temporarily while they work to improve it. Well, see, the thing is that things have changed a lot recently, and I'm guessing, you know, Yahoo email, because a lot of spam gets sent to people's 20-year-old email addresses, uh, Yahoo's getting flagged as spam in, say, everybody's Gmail uh, because the amount, you know, there's more spam than real email that comes through from Yahoo because the email addresses are so old. Yeah. Uh, this is the problem I have. Like, the uh, one of my personal old e email addresses forwards to my Gmail, and it often ends up in the spam because Google's just decided all that email coming from my IP address is spam because there's so much spam. Uh, and it's it's a problem. Yeah, so, you know what you know, it is? Yeah, it's whose the, excuse for this might actually be legitimate? The timing just sucks with the yes. revelation about the NSA monitoring and all of that. Yeah, and more people are trying to... But, you know, uh, the NSA monitoring affects you whether they forward the email or if they keep it there. So, you know, in the end, that doesn't make a difference. Mm -hmm. But yes, it could be a play by Yahoo to try to keep you using Yahoo's web interface to check your mail. Yeah. All right, well, this one comes from Krebs. Microsoft says, no more pick-and-choose patching for you. Yeah. So if you noticed in your uh, to do your Windows updates this month, uh, you saw two patches. The uh, October 2016 quarterly monthly quality roll-up for Windows. They tried to take too many keywords in that sentence. That just doesn't flow nice. No. Security monthly quality roll-up. That's how they roll. But uh, And then there's a separate roll-up for .NET, and those are your only two patches. Uh, and then there'll be a November apparently, and a and a and so on. And you're gonna so like instead it. of uh, a list of vulnerability, you know, a list of their uh, you know MS number 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 things you normally get, you just get October quarterly roll up and the November quarterly roll up and so on, or quality roll up. Sounds too much like quarterly, even though it's monthly. But anyway, <laughs> monthly quality roll ups are what we're getting now. Uh, the downside is that you know, uh, if something goes wrong with the install there, you don't get any of the patches instead of only the patch that didn't work. Yeah. And you can't easily opt out of one patch. Uh, I don't know. This might actually be easier for people. It's hard to say. Yeah. Ford's got some dirty laundry. Well, at least according to documents that were revealed in a class action lawsuit against Ford and its original My Ford in-vehicle entertainment system. The documents from 2013 lawsuit show Ford engineers believed the in-vehicle entertainment system that was powered by the sync operating system might be unusable and even described later as a polished turd by their very own engineers. <laughs> Unsaleable. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I have to... Our car has the very basic one. Like, it doesn't have a touchscreen or anything. It, it's got, like, a four-line LED yeah, display. Yeah, with the voice, too, uh, for stuff? Yeah. No, it doesn't oh, have any voice oh, stuff. Oh, really? Very, very basic sync. Okay. Uh, takes forever when I plug my phone into it, but eventually it does play the music. But, yeah. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I'm guessing the newer thing is that with a screen attached to it. No wonder it's terrible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know, it also the, the whole sync thing was Microsoft. So, yeah, 
Yeah, it's just funny to see their their engineers just call it like it is. When those of us who are familiar with good interface design and then sit down and something like that, we're like, oh, we're not even talking about the interface design at this point. We're talking about the underlying. The code just doesn't work. Yeah, that's true. That's true. All right. So how about this one? Mac OS Sierra permanently remembers your SSH key passphrases. You know, by default. Yeah, the uh, SSH agent uh, seems to be slightly not working the right way and just you type in your passphrase once and it remembers it forever and just your key is always available. Probably not what you were expecting. Also, uh, the traditional Unix pull functionality broken in Mac OS Sierra. So if you've noticed curls no longer working or tools that use pull, yeah, Apple broke it in OS Mac OS Sierra. And so one of the first things that I've noticed... Also, is- if you try to mount something over NFS, it will just crash immediately. <laughs> Sounds like a solid release. All right. This one's been getting our uh, audience all riled up. Comcast is deploying its one terabyte plan. And uh, they also have offered a $50 upgrade option for unlimited data. But what's really, what's really kind of uh, getting people is people that didn't have caps before are now getting caps. Uh, and I got, yeah, I got although one terabyte cap is not so bad as uh, 200 gigs and so on that we saw. The before. issue seems to be uh, so. I got contacted this week by an audience member where Comcast, when they rolled this out, said last month you used 996 gigabytes of data usage, and he checked his own stats and he shows like 500 and something mega, uh, gigabytes. So it's almost half of what Comcast shows. So he's not clear on what Comcast is using to measure because he's measuring it using PFSense um, at the edge of his network. Is he measuring both directions? Because I'm sure Comcast does, even though they yeah, probably mostly care about upload. They're yeah. mostly charging for oh, download, sure. but I'm sure they're catching both directions. Yeah. Uh, but yes, it's entirely possible that their numbers are wrong or inflated. <laughs> Remember how the Internet of Things is going to save us all time? Well, an Englishman has spent 11 hours trying to make a cup of tea with his Wi-Fi kettle. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, most of this 11 hours obviously spent trying to debug it. But, uh, <laughs> it's like, I'm a reasonably competent IT person. Why can't I get this damn thing to make me a cup of tea? Uh, interesting story. We're checking out if you're interested in Internet of Terrible being terrible. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Uh, okay. So Microsoft's. Oh, we were. To, that was that doubled up in the uh, in the freaking round. Oh there? yeah. Yeah. There Whoops. you go. Hey, look at us. Look you, at us. You doubled me up. You know what? It's because it's such an interesting story. That's why I doubled down on it. Uh, this is interesting. Is why does Sonic the Hedgehog run faster in America? Well, it turns out it comes down to your television's refresh rate. Uh, I guess over here, 60 hertz was sort of the common, but over the pond, 50 hertz was the standard. And turns out, in the U.S., that meant 30 frames per second on U.S. televisions and 25 frames per second on U.K. televisions. So that's all it took for a little bit of a difference there. (laughs) And you can just have the animation showing the start screen and how much slower the game was. Yeah, you do see it. You do notice it. Yeah. That's a good gif. Uh, Anyway, they have a whole uh, video explaining how it all worked and and so on, but uh, I just thought people might find that interesting. Now, nobody is surprised by this story. An ex-Yahoo employee says that the government spy program could have been given, could have given a hacker access to all the different emails. And it's really more about how this tool could have been exploited by an attacker to use it. And it's sort of a great reminder of when you create a legitimate backdoor access to something, it can be perverted by attackers. Exactly. And it's what we've been saying the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. A good piece, though, by The Intercept. Nice to see them mm-hmm. covering that. All right. Well, if you'd like to contribute to our roundup, you can. TechSnap.reddit.com. Go submit a link there. We check that before each and every single show. And don't forget, we'll have a double coming up in a couple of weeks. So you can submit your stories for that and your emails, and you can watch it live. All the lifetimes, they're all made clear over at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. And you can watch it at jblive.tv.
And uh, is there anything else we need to mention this week, Alan, before we get out of here? Uh, nope. Just remember uh, that uh, two weeks from now on the 27th, uh, yeah. show up early because uh, we're double recording. Yeah. And please send us more emails. And if you're an RSS subscriber, you don't have to do a thing. You'll just automatically get each new episode as they come out, and it'll just be nice and smooth. Also, yeah, don't forget. if you can uh, make it to Berkeley, you should be at MeetBSD. Yeah. Uh, which will be yeah, November 11th. Come say hi to Alan, Chris, mm-hmm. myself, producer Q5Sys at MeetBSD. Uh, and I was going to say, don't forget that everything we've talked about, anything we've referenced, it's all linked in the show notes. Just go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com and look for episode 288. And Mr. Jude has documented all, and we've linked it all right there. So you can just get a story or um, a tip, anything, or even go read one of the emails that was sent to the show just by checking the show notes. Okay, everybody, thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week. <laughs>